Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have a great program lined up for today, Prusbol Innovative Halachic Change or Gaming the System with Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfield. Rabbi Hirschfield teaches Talmud, Halakha, and Jewish thought at Pardes. In addition, Tzvi is a faculty member of the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators and has been training and mentoring Jewish educators for over 10 years in tefillah and educational settings, critical issues in modern Jewish thought, and Israel education. She holds a BA in history from Columbia University and did graduate work at Harvard University in medieval and modern Jewish thought. He studied at Yeshiva Tar Etzion in Israel and has rabbinic ordination from the chief rabbinate of Israel. All right, so without further ado, please welcome Rabbi Hirschfield. Hello, everybody. Uh, I get to say, I'm assuming it's morning for most of you, but I realize you could be from anywhere uh uh, on the globe. It's the miracle of Zoom. So Boker Tov. Uh, I'm happy to do most of this frontally, but I, I would invite you if you have questions uh, or if something is not clear uh, during our learning together, please let me know. Uh, I will do my best to provide context and translation uh, whenever it is necessary. But if you feel like I have lost you, uh, please uh, uh, stop me and let me know and I will try to make it as clear as I can. Okay, so we're gonna begin our journey into uh, a discussion of Prusbol. As I was telling uh, Alex before we got started, uh, the word Prusbol itself is a Greek word. It's a debate whether it means document or contract or legal bill of some kind, but it has its origins as we'll see in just a moment uh, around the biblical laws of Shemitah, of the sabbatical year. Uh, for those who are, before we jump into the source sheet, for those who are not familiar, uh, every seven years in the land of Israel, there is a sabbatical year. And the sabbatical year has two primary components. One component is agricultural, where we are not allowed to plow or plant uh, our crops. And in fact, all the crops that do pop up in the sabbatical year, the fruits or the grains that grow during that year are said to be ownerless. Uh, we're supposed to open up our fields uh, and invite anyone, animals and people alike to come and partake of the fruits and grains that, that, that are growing in the fields and individual ownership over the fields ceases. In the book of Leviticus, we're told because it's a reminder that, that the land belongs to God I know that Rav Shmuley has written extensively about the implications of Shemitah and some of these laws vis-a-vis -vis, uh, our responsibility to the environment and ecological and ethical concerns. In this case, though, we're focusing a little bit more on the economic. The other area of Shemitah of the sabbatical year uh, relates to loans. And that is the idea, as we'll see in a moment inside the text, that one who has borrowed money and has not paid it back, the sabbatical year wipes out the debt. So every seven years in principle, there is a reset, a forgiveness of debt that goes across the board, which I know right now that sounds wonderful, but uh, that also indeed brought its own challenges. So if there are any sort of overall questions about what I've said, please raise your hand or turn off your mic and let me know. If not, we're going to jump in. I'm going to, sh I'm going to share my screen with you, which miraculously is something I know how to do, even in my state of uh, technological challenge. Uh, I still know how to do that. And we're going to jump in to our text, our biblical text. So the agricultural laws around the sabbatical year are covered primarily in the book of Leviticus. And here in the book of Deuteronomy, a whole nother uh, element uh, is interjected. And the text begins in Deuteronomy 15 by telling us at the, at the end of seven years, there will be a Shemitah, which means a remission of death. 
And the text goes on to say, here is the matter of Shemitah. I'm translating freely from the Hebrew a little bit. You have the English here next to you. Shmot kol bao. Masha yado. Anybody who is holding a loan over his friend, over Reehu, lo ye ghosts. He may not collect from his friend or from his brother uh, on that loan because it is a Shemitah to God. The text says we are allowed to collect on loans that are outstanding to foreigners, but not to our brethren. Okay, so the Jewish people with one another have a period of release of debt. The text then goes on to say something very interesting. It says, however, FS Kilo Yubacha, there will not be poor people among you. God will bless you and bless the land that he has given you. Now, this is very interesting. It's why. What does this have to do with poor people and loans? In context, in the biblical context, loans were not used for business purposes. Uh, as an agrarian-based economy, loans were basically a form of staka, of charity. A farmer had a bad year in order to buy more materials and seed to get himself back on his feet or herself back on her feet for the following year, they would need a loan, money to tide them over until the new crop came in. That is why there is a link between the need to borrow money and poverty. We are not talking about investment bankers with outstanding debt for billions of dollars on different stock deals that at the end of the seventh year is going to be undone. We are speaking in terms of debt, private debt between individuals, of loans given over to help people through difficult times. And the Torah goes on to say, why will there be no needy people among you? Because as is the theme of the book of Deuteronomy, if you listen to God's laws and follow his commandments, uh, then God will bless you and bless the land. Okay. It goes on to say, because you'll be blessed by God economically, you'll be able to extend credit to the Gentile uh, nations around you, uh, uh, and you will also enjoy sovereignty and security. So far, so good. Now the text takes a turn. If we do everything right, no one will need to lend money because everyone will be economically self-sufficient and doing well. However, the text goes on. If there is a poor person among your brethren in your land that God has given you, now the Torah says, don't harden your heart. Don't close up your fist from the poor. So you see here, the remission of debt is brought here in a certain context of the Torah telling us we may not turn our backs on the poor and the needy. We may not harden our hearts. We may not close up our fists. Rather, the Torah says, open up your, your hand and lend money, provide him with what he needs and meet his needs. Now, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't someone want to lend money to a friend? Well, here the Torah makes the link. If there's a remission of debt at the end of every seven years, there's going to be a problem. What's the problem? Beware. You'll have a negative or base thought in your heart that will say what? The seventh year is approaching. The Shemitah is approaching. There's going to be this forgiveness of debt, and I won't get my money back. The needy person won't pay me back. And therefore, I'm not going to lend because if I lend money in year four, year five, year six of this seven-year Shemitah cycle, I might end up having the debt forgiven and therefore I won't lend money to begin with. You see the problem. If divine blessing is sustaining everyone then no one is concerned. No one feels that they might be without. But if divine blessing, for whatever reason, is not sustaining everyone, then there's going to be a challenge. They're going to be needy people. They're going to be wealthier people. 
And now the wealthy person can enter into a mindset that says, I can't lend out money. That that whole seventh year deal, which brings everybody back to an equal footing, well, I could really pay the price. I won't get my money back. And therefore, I can't afford to lend money with this Shemitah system in place. The Torah anticipates that thought system, and it offers a solution. What is the Torah's solution? The Torah's solution to give is based on the following. The Torah says, give generously. Don't have any regrets or negative thoughts when you give it. Why not? Don't worry. If you give generously, God will guarantee that you will come out okay. Don't worry about it. God is offering the Jewish people the best 401k plan we could possibly ask for. God will take care of your needs. You be generous, and God will make sure that things work out. And then it goes on to say, They're always going to be the poor and needy among you. Therefore, God says, I'm commanding you, to open your hand and your heart to the poor. So here we have the Torah laying out both a situation, a solution, and a potential problem, and a solution to that problem. The situation is as thus. People fall into debt. They borrow in year one. They borrow in year two. They borrow in year three. And as a result of falling into debt, they can't get out. They can't get out of debt. The Torah comes along and says, every seventh year, the loans are all released. You get a do-over. You get to start again. Ah, but there's a problem. When all the lenders realize that every seventh year, there's going to be a do-over, they're going to stop lending money. They're going to say, I can't afford to lend money. I can't afford to get into this cycle of giving out money and then not getting it back. To which the Torah answers, don't worry. about it. God says, if you give generously, I will take care of you. If you open up your heart and open up your hand, I will make sure that your livelihood is blessed. You give generously, you rely on me to take care. You can already imagine now the potential problem. So before we get to the issue of Prusbul and the potential problem, I just want to note, in general, there are two sort of basic approaches to what this, the idea of Shemitah is coming to sell. So one approach from the Sefer Achinuch, a 13th century work, anonymous work written in Spain, where he goes through a list of all the commandments, he says as follows. He says, I already addressed this in Parshat Mishpatim in the book of Exodus about the release of land, which I have mentioned to you, the agricultural laws of Shemitah. And I spoke to you then about the root of the commandment. And he goes on to say the release of monies, the Shemitah of loans, also draws from the same reason. Why do we do this? Look at what he says. To train our souls in virtuous traits, the trait of generosity and a kind eye, and the great faith in our hearts towards God, blessed be he. And then our soul will be prepared to receive the good from the master of all, and which is included in blessing and mercy. So what's he saying? He is saying Shemitah at its core is not about the poor. It's about training ourselves to be loving and generous God tells us to wipe out those loans, according to Sefer Chinuch, not because the poor need it, because fundamentally we need it. We need to let go, he says, of our attachment to material things and to trust in God's blessing and mercy. We need to overcome our very instinctive, self-protective and ego-driven desires to hold on to as much as we can and to give and to share and to take care of others. And he says this will be a training 
that will also prevent us from stealing, from taking things that don't belong to us, to becoming obsessed with our material existence, and to learn not to be envious of what other people have, and to trust in God. The Shemitah prohibitions are there to teach us how to control our relationship with money and property and material blessing. Maimonides, however, took a different view. Maimonides says, as to the precepts enumerating the laws for the year of release and the Jubilee year, some of them imply sympathy with our fellow men and promote the well-being of mankind because it's about taking care of the poor. Maimonides says very simply, we are commanded in these laws to take care of the poor. They are the great economic equalizer to get everybody out of crushing debt and everybody brought back to the status quo. Are there any questions about what I've laid out so far before we talk about the great rabbinic innovation of Prusbul? I don't see any hands, so I'm just gonna keep going. We're good? Actually, I'll just stop the share for a moment just to look around. Everyone's good? You're with me? Okay, someone's got really cool flashing lights on their ceiling. That's very exciting. I like that a lot because it's a very festive atmosphere. Okay, we're going to keep going. Alex, give me a nod. We're good. Keep going. All right. Alex is our, uh, is, is our producer in addition to everything else that Alex gets to do. Okay, here we go. As you might imagine, in this system, a problem emerged. And here is what we learn about what happened in the late Second Temple period from a scholar named Hillel. Hillel noticed a problem. The Mishnah tells us the following. It says a loan secured by a prusbul, by this type of legal document, is not canceled by the Shemitah year. This was one of the things instituted by Hillel the Elder. Now, you're going to look at this and say, what? The Torah says loans are forgiven. Why would a rabbi who loves the Torah, who feels obligated by the Torah, create a document, create a prusbul to avoid loans being canceled out? Why would a rabbi come up with a way to get around a law that the Torah commanded? The Mishnah tells us why. For when he saw that people were refraining from lending to one another, they were transgressing that which is written in the Torah. Guard yourself, lest you will have that negative thought in your heart about the seventh year, and you will be miserly, and you won't lend. Hillel said, that's it. I'm putting in the crucible. What happened? A problem emerged. The Torah thought it could solve the problem of people not lending money in the face of remission of debt by God promising to take care of us. Well, you're not going to believe this. It's a stunner. But it turns out that there were a lot of Jews who were not able to overcome their desire to hold on to their money, even with the promise of the Torah that God would take care of. And they said something like, well, that's really nice, God. But you know what? I prefer that my checking account retain the following balance. People stopped lending. And now Hillel the elder was faced with the real problem. Because if people didn't lend, the poor would be stuck. And he made the decision to create a legal workaround, a prusbul document that enabled the lender to collect their money even after the sabbatical year, with the intention then of turning to the wealthy people and saying, now you've got no excuse. You're not, you weren't lending money because you were worried the sabbatical year would cancel it out. I, a rabbi who loves the Torah, and follows the Torah, I'm going to give you a legal loophole 
to get around the law of Shemitah to protect against people becoming miserly and not lending their money. And as the Mishnah told us, Hillel Institute approves for the betterment of the world, to fix the world. So what happened? Hillel, let, let, let's go back. If the reason we have the sabbatical year, as the Chinuch pointed out, was so people would not become selfish and harden their hearts and overly attached to their money, it didn't work. And if the reason we have the Shemitah year, the cancellation of debt, as Maimonides taught us, was to take care of the poor so the poor would have a fresh start, it wasn't working. The, people, the poor are being hurt by the sabbatical year because they couldn't get loans that they desperately needed to bridge themselves back to better times. So Hillel came along and solved both of those problems by creating a prusible, a legal document that technically gave one's loans over to the court, enabling the court to collect on those loans, even in the face of a sabbatical year. And now you should be wondering to yourself, well, wait a minute. Is that really possible that the rabbis could actually institute something that seems to work around or go against what the Torah wanted? The Torah says that the loans during the sabbatical year are canceled out. How can a rabbi come along and come up with a loophole to get around a biblical Commandment. Now, as we see here in a moment, the rabbis of the Talmud after Hillel were scared about that very same problem. So here is what they said. They asked a fascinating question. But is there anything like this where by, the, by, by Torah law, the sabbatical year cancels the debt, but Hillel instituted does not cancel the debt? The Talmud asked the $64,000 question. How is it possible to suggest? That's like the Torah saying you can't eat bacon and Rav Shmuley getting up in his shul is saying, you know what, for the next two weeks, bacon is okay. At that moment, Rav Shmuley's rabbinic colleagues are asking, how is such a thing possible? As great a rabbi as Rav Shmuley is, how is it possible? That the Torah could prohibit bacon and Rav Shmuley could say bacon is okay. Well, that's what they were asking about Hillel. How is it possible the Torah says sabbatical year cancels out debt and Hillel institutes a prusbul and the debt isn't canceled? This shook them to their very foundation. Let's take a look at their answers and we can discuss why they were so terrified. Abaye said, ah, don't worry. When Hillel created this, this idea, he was only referring to our time period where the sabbatical year, according to is only rabbinic in nature. Ah, oh, that's one brilliant rabbinic answer. Meaning, there were rabbis who believed that after the destruction of the temple, the second temple, and with the majority of the Jewish people living outside the land, the agricultural laws were only rabbinic. They were no longer biblical. Oh, so Hillel didn't really abrogate a biblical law. He only found a solution for a rabbinic law. Whew, now I can breathe. Rav Shmuley wasn't allowing us biblically prohibited pork. He was only allowing us to eat something rabbinically prohibited. All right, that calms me down. He's not going against the Torah. He is simply a rabbi finding a workaround for a rabbinic law. Whew. Rava, the fourth generation, Amora and Bavel, gave a different answer. He says, don't worry about it. This is simply an example of the rabbis using their authority to make property ownerless. Hefker, Beitin, Hefker. The rabbis have a, an authority when it comes to property or money to render it ownerless. They're allowed to confiscate property when they deem it necessary. 
So don't worry, they weren't abrogating biblical law. They were simply using the court's prerogative, something to the equivalent of eminent domain, to confiscate money or move money around. Now, why are the rabbis so invested in finding these solutions? Because they are confronted with a very threatening problem. And that is the problem of halachic stability and biblical authority. What do I mean? And we'll look at this further in just a few minutes, but I want to just set this up for you so it's very clear. We assume, the traditional Talmudic rabbinic model assumes, that the reason the Torah has authority is because the Torah is composed of divine legislation. It is a heteronymous system. I hope I pronounced that right. Where God commands and we have to do. What would it mean to say that rabbis have the authority to put aside biblical commands? What would that do to the whole notion of the system, of the authority of the Torah? That would turn mitzvot potentially into 613 suggestions. 613 recommendations to a better you. That is not how the rabbis understood the mitzvot of the Torah. They understood the mitzvot of the Torah as being divine command. So here we seem to have an example where the great sage Hillel took it upon himself to work around the divine command of the cancellation of debt by creating a prusbul, by creating this legal workaround so people could continue lending money. Now, we, we see why he did it, because he saw that people were not living up to the Torah's requirement to continue lending money to the poor. And they were falling into the trap, both of their own negative character development of becoming too attached to their money, and the poor were being harmed. We understand then why Hillel would institute this system, but it created a terrible anxiety, a Talmudic anxiety, where the rabbis are actually struggling with the fear of their own authority. How far could their authority go? Because the more they assert their authority, the more they are potentially undermining God's authority, which in the end, of course, will undermine their own authority, right? Rabbinic authority as interpreters of the law, as protectors of the law, as the appliers of the law. Well, if ultimately the law is perceived to be whatever we want it to be, that creates a tremendous anxiety about the authority of the Torah and God's authority and seeing the Torah as an authority in our lives. So they offered two solutions, either really Shemitah, the sabbatical year, in, a post in, in the time of exile is only rabbinic. So the rabbis aren't really flouting biblical authority. Or the other idea that Ravis said, oh, don't worry, this is an economic workaround that the rabbis are empowered to do. The rabbis are empowered through eminent domain to move people's property around. The Shemitah laws are still in place. But as we're going to see in a moment, this anxiety did not go away. And by the way, not to give everything away up front, this anxiety over rabbinic authority is a problem that continues through this day. We'll talk about more about that at the end. Uh, so the Talmud noticed the Mishnah itself seems to suggest that by handing our documents, our debt over to the court, Shemitah would not apply. Meaning even without a prusbul, there is a suggestion that certain types of loans, loans that are made with a pledge, meaning you uh, 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 collateral, 
or loans given over to the court to collect, these loans are not remitted. The Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud from Eretz Yisrael, even brought a verse to support that idea. The verse says, only loans between you and your fellow will be released. This would exclude documents or loans handed over to the court, meaning the, the Talmud itself is suggesting that what Hillel did was not such a big change. The Bible already anticipated this type of mechanism because the Shemitah law, the remission of debt, never applied to loans that were given over to the court. Of course, that raised a tremendous tension. If the Shemitah rules never applied, then what is the big deal of what Hillel did? It sounds like Hillel didn't do anything because it was already baked into the cake on a biblical level from the very beginning. So here you have a few answers to this point. I'll just look at them with you briefly. Uh, Rashi says, no, no, no. Hillel created the whole thing. The reason that debts handed over to court are not remitted is because of Prusbul. Hillel, according to Rashi, authored the whole idea. Other commentaries didn't like that. Again, why not? Because other commentators are saying, how could Hillel have so much power? How could you give the rabbis so much power to work around biblical rules? So other medieval commentaries said, slow down. Hillel didn't do that much. Here's the commentary of Tosfot, 12th century interpreters of the Talmud, who noted as following. They said, even though we have the verse, the rabbis interpreted the verse in the Sifrei, in a rabbinic collection of Midrash, of halachic hermeneutics, that uh, loans given over to the court are, are, are not under Shemitah, meaning Hillel didn't establish anything new. The Gemara still wanted to know, why would Hillel publicize it? Why would Hillel make everybody aware of this biblical loophole? And that's what the Gemara wanted to know and wanted to justify. The Ritva, another Spanish commentator of the 13th century, early 14th century, said as follows. He says, Hillel made the Prusbul simply to tell you that biblically you had to give a document over to the Beit Din. Hillel made it so you didn't have to give the document over to the Beit Din. So what's going on here? What you have here is medieval halachic anxiety, where the rabbis in the Middle Ages are struggling, and they, except for Rashi, they are in fact limiting the innovation of Hillel. They are saying Hillel did not create a whole new world. Hillel simply used the biblical authority that was already present, that loans given over to the court are not subject to the Shemitah rules. Why? So here I'm going to suggest they are responding out of anxiety, out of the fear of what Hillel's innovation could suggest. Namely, do rabbis really have the authority to work around biblical laws? How can you give rabbis that much authority? The danger to the halachic system is so present in their minds that you can see a hermeneutic interpretive tradition that sought to limit the scope and extent of Hillel's innovation. Hillel didn't really do that much. Now, if all I have is the Mishnah, especially the one Mishnah we learned, I'd say Hillel created a whole new world. The Bible said all loans are remitted during the seventh year. Hillel says, no, use this Greek document I'm coming up with and the biblical and the loans can still be collected. Why? Because we're facing a crisis. People aren't lending money. The poor are suffering. The rich are getting more selfish. We need to work around the biblical law. But that created an earthquake. 
What do you mean work around the biblical law? Is everything subject to rabbinic workaround? We don't like Shabbat on Saturday. We'll move it to Tuesday. Pork looks too delicious. We'll make that, uh, we'll make that permit. And so on and so on and so on. Any biblical law could be subject to rabbinic workaround. So Hillel's innovation created an interpretive backlash. Hillel didn't really do that much. The Torah, the Torah already excluded loans given over to the court. Hillel simply made people aware of the workaround. Hillel simply made it so people didn't have to fill out the form. You could fill it out online. Hillel didn't innovate because the rabbis are afraid of their own power to innovate because of the fear that such innovation could do to the system. When people tell you that the Orthodox community's fear of the slippery slope is a modern fear, I point to this example of Prusbul as the counter example. The rabbis have always been aware, or if I, I could argue, living in, the, in, in a tremendous tension. On the one hand, the awareness that we sometimes need workarounds and loopholes for the sake of economic or ethical need. On the other hand, the profound awareness of how these loopholes and workarounds undermine people's faith in the authority of the law. And I'm just going to run through with you a few other examples of rabbinic workarounds, some of which you may be well aware of, others might be new for you, and then we're going to have some time for questions if there are any questions. Are there any questions now about anything I've said so far that people would like to put out there? I can't see everybody on my screen, but I'm going to assume we're, we're good. Alex, give me the thumbs up if we're good to continue. Yep, you're good to go. Uh, I love having a producer. This is great. I'm going to hire you for every Zoom class I do, Alex. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. I will pay you with, with, the, with uh, the reward of a mitzvah. No, I'm just kidding. Can't afford you. Okay, here we go. Number one, uh, has anybody ever gone through the, the situation of selling their chametz? Right? Passover is upon us. We have all of these leavened products in our possession, especially if it's fancy alcohol, like a good scotch or something like that. And, and what do we do? I bet you even Rav Shmuley, as a rabbi of a community in a shul, has engaged in this practice. Well, how is such a thing possible? The Torah says, for all seven days, you can't eat unleavened bread, and you can't own or have any leavened bread found in your possession. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The rabbis innovated a workaround, which says, I can sell my chametz to a non-Jew and get it back after Passover. As is found in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, chametz owned by a Jew, which was in his possession during Pesach, is prohibited. Even after Pesach, it's prohibited. However, he says, if chametz was sold or given as a gift to a non-Jew for Pesach, although it was sold to a non-Jew, it will certainly not touch it at all, meaning it's not even a real sale. It's a wink-wink sale. We know full well that the non-Jew is not going to come to our home. I guarantee you, everybody who's listening to this, and Rav Shmuley tells me there are a lot of people out there, nobody has an example that they sold hummets before Pesach and that the non-Jew showed up during Pesach and says, I'm here to collect. Give me the hummets I bought. Nobody. It's a fictitious sale. And even as a fictitious sale, it allows us to work around the law. Now, why? how did this law get started, really? So here you have an example, a 17th century example of an Ashkenazic rabbi explaining how this leniency emerged. He says, in our region, the majority of business is in whiskey. It's impossible to sell in such a way that the chametz is removed from the house, especially if you own a distillery. What are you going to do? You're going to go broke every Passover? 
Your primary livelihood is the distilling of spirits from grain. The only way you don't go broke on Pesach is we allow you to sell your chametz to a non-Jew. And this leniency spread far and wide where I guarantee you a Talmudic rabbi would say, what are you doing? You got to get rid of your chametz. Got to get rid of your leavening. And here we are 1,500 years later and the selling of chametz is a widespread practice among the most observant, the most strict especially in cases of financial loss. I'll give you another example. Lending money with interest. The Torah says you can't lend money with interest, right? Because lending money is a chesed. It's an act of kindness. It's staka. It's charity. You don't charge interest. It's part of sustaining your fellow. Well, in a post-agrarian economy, we developed a problem. Money lending was no longer about stucca. Money lending was business. It was investment. It was banking. So the rabbi said, well, we need a workaround. And they came up with what's called a heter iska, which, as you see from this brief ex explanation here, it's a halachically approved way of restructuring or a loan or a debt. So it becomes an investment instead of a loan. Look at that. Look at the rabbinic innovation. In the face of economic need, we come up with a workaround. And of course, this raises the very question that we spoke of that is in the very title of our learning together. Are these halachic workarounds a legitimate expression of the Jewish legal system? which is attempting to be responsive and creative? Or is this just gaming the system? Is this turning these laws into a joke? And therefore we can do whatever we want, whenever we need. It's a very fair question. I'll just give a couple more examples and then we'll turn it over to questions. This is a Shemitah example. For any of you who have been in Israel, I know Rav Shmuley was just in Israel. We're not supposed to plant. We're not supposed to harvest. We're not supposed to sell our produce. So what is filling up the supermarkets and, and fruit shops and vegetable stores in, in, the, in the land of Israel in a sabbatical year? The answer is we came up with what's called the heter mechira, the leniency of selling the topsoil, which means that farmers and kibbutzim and Moshavim, uh, farming communities all over Israel, not all, but most, go again, just like selling chametz, they sell the topsoil of their farm. So now the soil belongs to a non-Jew and not to a Jew, and therefore you can plant and harvest as usual. Now again, you could view this as a, you're cheapening the system. Or you could say, this is how legal innovation works. I'll give you one more example. There are many other examples in halacha, but I'll give you one more example and then offer you my understanding of, of what's happening here in general. This one's a bit complicated, but it's worth looking at. At least I think it's worth looking at. Fruit and produce grow in the land of Israel have a system of tithing, which means before one can eat it, different portions have to be given. The Kohen, the priest gets Truma, the Levite gets Maser, and then there's another form of tithe of a tenth. In years one, two, four, and five of the tithing cycle, there's something called Maser Sheni, where a person has to take a tithe, a tenth of their produce, and literally bring it to Jerusalem to eat it in Jerusalem alongside the various sacrifices they're bringing to the temple uh, at festive or joyous times. Lovely. Every farmer in the land of Israel is going to bring their produce to, to Jerusalem. And the Torah even says, if, if bringing all of that produce is too difficult, you can transfer the value of that produce onto coins 
and bring those coins with you to Jerusalem and use it to buy food and wine or voluntary sacrifices, again, to celebrate and eat and joy and festivity with your family and friends in Jerusalem. However, there's one small catch. When you want to transfer the value of this produce onto coins, you have to add a fifth. You have to add a a 20% fine or addition. It's more expensive to bring it on coins. Now, that is all the lead up to something fascinating the Mishnah says. The Mishnah says one can act in a deceptive manner when it comes to Maser Shani. What? The Mishnah, the rabbis are saying, you know what? We're going to give you a loophole, a workaround, a way to cheat the system. How does this work? Because the rabbis claim that when one redeems their own produce for the second tithe, they have to add the fifth. If you redeem somebody else's produce, you don't have to pay the extra. So what do they say you can do? You can say to your grown-up son or your daughter or your Hebrew slave and say, hey, take this money as a gift and redeem that Maser Sheni, that second tithe over there. What? The rabbi said you can trick the system. You can game the system to save the extra penalty money. The Talmud asks, why would the rabbis let me do that? Why would they want to encourage me to work or cheat the system? And here they offer a fascinating reason. The Talmud asks, why can we be deceptive in this issue of the second tithe? It answers because the Torah says about redeeming the second tithe, God will bless you. The second tithe will be a blessing. What does that mean? It means the Torah has an interest in the commandments being seen as a blessing to us, not a curse. I believe that logic dominates the rabbinic thinking throughout. I don't think that the rabbis are trying to find loopholes or gain the, game the system as a way of thumbing their nose or saying the system doesn't count or the system isn't important. I think what the rabbis are saying is that there are two competing values. There is the value of the sabbatical year and remission of loans. There's the value of getting rid of our hummates. There's the value of, of not charging interest on loans and a whole host of other cases where they made changes, inheritance law, the second tithe. I've got a whole list. Following those laws is a value. But there's a competing value. And that is the value that a life of Torah and mitzvot should be seen as a blessing and not a curse. And when following these mitzvot threaten our economic livelihood, threaten the conditions of the poor, threaten our ability to enjoy the holidays, threaten our ability to to support ourselves, threaten our ability to take care of the poor, well, then we need a workaround. Now, one could ask, as many people do, oh, come on, selling chametz is such a joke. That's not a real sale. We all know it's not a real sale. I go to Rav Shmuley and I, and I uh, fill out a form and Rav Shmuley wishes, uh, hold, uh, gives me a pen to hold up, hold up or his cell phone and now I can keep my chametz in my home. Why don't we just do away with it? Why doesn't Rav Shmuley just say, forget it? Why these workarounds and loopholes? My answer would be the power of the loophole is that it preserves both values. It preserves the value of following the Torah, and it also preserves the value of taking care of the poor or other needs that are bumping up against the commandments of the Torah. But by doing it with a loophole, I remember, I am always reminded that there are two values at play. And that is the tightrope that the rabbis are walking. On the one hand, to respect 
divine authority and the authority of the system and to see Torah law as an expression of divine will, but also understand at the same time that God wants our lives to be filled with blessing. God wants the poor to be taken care of. God wants our livelihoods to be maintained. God wants us to be able to function as normal, healthy, responsible people. And therefore, we need these workarounds. So the Prusbul document, just to sum up, is not there to turn the sabbatical year into a joke. The Prusbul document is meant to be a shining example of how we live in the tension between two competing values. And that is the value of a biblical Torah that ideally says all debts should be canceled. Because God will guarantee that we'll be taken care of and a human reality where God's guarantee was no longer enough. And people were going to stop lending to the poor, to their own detriment and to society's detriment, unless the rabbis acted and created a workaround. But that document itself should remind us that we live in a tension between these two values. Hillel's innovation was not to get rid of the Torah. It was to figure out a way to remember what the Torah wanted from us and to still make the Torah, living according to the Torah, possible in our lives at the same time. I am done talking your ear off. What questions or comments might you want to share? Um, there was a, a a question and a comment in the chat. Okay, I know Hannah, your hand went up, and I have to. I will take a look at the chat. Hannah, what's your question? Uh, I'm actually very cynical, and when you started to tell all these things, I thought that's why Jewish people can be such great uh, lawyers ah. because they find a way, you know, how to really go around and loop it. And I'm not saying it, it it's, it, I can say now how you, you can't do it. I would never do it, okay? Because I'm just straightforward, okay? But I'm not a lawyer either. So I just, you know, I became cynical from that. That's what I want to tell you. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that that's why the rabbis were so hesitant, right? That's why the, the, the Talmud was so hesitant in viewing Hillel's innovation as too much of innovation because they were worried that people like Hannah Weisberger were going to become cynical, right? They said, you know, if we if we give him this much power openly, people are going to become cynical. They're going to say, well, rabbis do whatever they want. And I hear that cynicism. Uh, on the other hand, you could argue for a, a good 1,800 years, they seem to manage to bridge this gap, right? That people figured out to both follow the laws of, of Pesach and to get rid of the chametz, uh, that they didn't eat the chametz and they, and they didn't buy the chametz and sell their chametz as a workaround at the same time. So you could argue they somehow managed. And, and I agree with you. Most people aren't even aware anymore of the need for a heter iska. You know, people go to the banks in Israel. It's actually there on the wall, by the way. You know how kosher restaurants have their certification? The banks in Israel have the heter iska on the wall. But you're right, that loophole has become so in, in, ingrained, no one even thinks about it. The same thing with Shemitah, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But it's more than this. So yeah. popular, you wouldn't even know it's a sabbatical year in Israel today. You wouldn't yeah, know. Own any grocery store, you see all the fruits, all the vegetables, and you buy without thinking. So I hear your point. Yeah, it's more. It's like now I think, you know, I, I'm an Israeli. So here I see how much the Constitution is really sacred, okay? And how here people try now, they learn how to have the loopholes and go around. So it's really took it to another step. I'm not saying it, it's, it's a cynical thing, but it's like it just opened my, my head because people say that Jewish people can be great lawyers and maybe because they learned from this how to go around. 
Well, right. But I just also want to remind us, sometimes they learn to go around and sometimes they say no. And they say, no, we have to follow these lines. But you're right. I, I understand where you're coming from. It's a very good point. Other questions or comments? I I'm very cynical. Hey, Vanti. Siniut. Uh, what am I missing in the chat, Alex? Um, so th there were a couple comments and questions going back. Uh, Gary asked, can we use tikkun olam as a principle to modify the law when it is necessary? Not overruling a law, but using another concept princ principle to nudge it a little in the right way. Uh, well, the Mishnah has examples of using tikkun olam to, to adjust or change the law. Uh, in, in laws of divorce, in certain laws in, in reactions to our relationship with non-Jews. So it certainly happened in the past. I think the big question people want to know today is where is this legal flexibility of today? Here is where I'm going to get a little heretical, right? I think that uh, we are living in a time, at least in the Orthodox world, where the fear of the slippery slope is so powerful that legal flexibility has become a code word for, you know, giving it all up. Uh, and many Orthodox rabbis, and again, I realize that this is going to be taped, so I get, that's okay, I can get myself into trouble, are so afraid of being called reform. And you should know, uh, Hannah, in the Orthodox world, that's not a compliment. In the non-Orthodox world, it could be a lovely compliment. But in the Orthodox world, being labeled reform is not a compliment. And, and this sense of, if I acknowledge the flexibility of the law, am I going to pull the whole foundation down? So I think uh, it's not a question of not having tools in the toolkit. It's a question of who's willing to use those tools. And I also have to acknowledge the fear is legitimate. The yeah, fear, that we, can, yeah. the fear yeah. that we can undermine the system with too much flexibility is real. The question is where we want to end up on that scale, and that's a fascinating, interesting question. No, it's a real, very strong tension. No, I, I just wanted to ask, I know that the, I, this is Judaism, but I heard that the Muslims also go by the rule of no interest for a loan. Do they yeah. stick for it, or they also had something to go around? They, they need a heter iska, right? Okay. Anybody who lends money to a Jew with interest needs a heter iska. But again, the Hector Iska feel is just feels like a loophole, right? All right. Have I want to live also. Uh, anybody else with a quick thought? Because I realize we're out of time, basically. What I want to ask: Prusbul was only related to the Shemitah, or if he had other things? So Prusbul is related only to the Shemitah. Uh -huh. I'll hear from uh, Barry. I think you wanted to say something. I think you're on mute, though, Barry. Okay. It's Dove, not Barry, but that's I'm all right. I'm sorry. I was just reading off the screen. Dove. I realize it. I think the key was your statement. It's not that we're doing whatever we want, or rabbis do whatever they want. It's rabbis doing what they need. And that was the point of the chesed. Yes. Right. And the question that we're going to fight about endlessly, unfortunately, in the Jewish world is what is it we need? Which is why I'm reframing it, basically saying in today's halachic world, it's the, the, the ethical uh, needs on the one hand and, an, uh, and a need for authority and structure and maintaining the system on the other. Those have become the two competing needs, even though people may not articulate it as such. I think you're right. Well, you know what? A great, I can't finish any better than having Dove thinking I'm right. <laughs> you can do much speed. better. Somebody thinking I'm right at Pardes, that never happened. So I'm going to accept that as a sign from God that I finish at the right time. Uh, I really want to thank. Uh, uh, you Rabbi, did. You did. You did. And I want thank to you. thank uh, I, I uh, Alex. And I want to thank all of you for including me. I had a lovely time with all of you. And I hope you all continue with your learning in this wonderful program and in other wonderful programs. Alex, thank you.
Thank you so I just, much, Rabbi. I just wanted to tell you, I learned about the post school in Israel, but this was in high school, and I could not remember what it meant. So I was but, very happy. I but Hana, high school is only like 10 years ago for you, I'm guessing. Almost. <laughs> I'm 73. Wow. Kanain Hara, Ad Mea Vesrim. Hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much for joining us today. And of course, I want to thank Rabbi Hirschfield for leading us in that very interesting lesson. I wish we could have more time to uh, to discuss it more. Um, I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors, Congregation Ortsiyan, for this program. Um, and I want to let you all know that tomorrow we have another opportunity to learn together um, for our program, Brothers Crying Out from the Ground, The Biblical Origins of Our Divided Society with Judy Klitzner. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.